Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How can we approach games in a way that is kinder to players? Because I think that's the issue. The issue is not that we're giving the DM too much power, which also may be true in certain games. But I think it's that we are treating the player or the players like an audience. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, this show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today. And I think I've brought quite a great guest. Recent addition to the Draw Your Dice community over on the Discord server. Shameless plug there. But has been a warm welcome nonetheless. I'd like to introduce one of the designers behind Clawhammer RPGs. Design One of the designers for the soon Kickstarter project, Gravemire, I would like to welcome to the show, David Gales. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> we are doing well, David. Glad to hear it. We are Legion. David, thank you so much for being here today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, no, it's very exciting. I'm glad to be here. As always, for the beginning of the show, would you just give a brief introduction of who you are, how you present yourself to the world or on the internet, and make sure to include any plugs where people can reach and get in touch with you, because I want to guarantee that they can check you out and give you dollars, even if they don't make it to the end of this episode. Sure thing. So my name is David. I am the the founder and the director of Clawhammer Games, which is a tabletop role-playing game studio. Right now, we're working on uh, Gravemire, which we'll talk about in a bit. It's a 
horror game set in 1894 in the Louisiana Bayou, but I suspect that that will be the sort of prime focus of today's episode, so we'll talk about some other stuff. I've been making games and running games for over 10 years now, but I figured that it would probably be better not to keep doing it alone, so (laughs) I made a game studio, and... I'm one of several people working on the project and on some other stuff. We have plenty of good good stuff coming your way. I use they, them pronouns. I don't know if that's relevant here, but that's... that's Super relevant. Cool. I do. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is Lamplighter1504, and the Clawhammer Games Twitter is at ClawhammerRP. Those those are the main things. And then, of course, you can, you can find us on itch.io at climber games and on kickstarter same name should be pretty easy there, there are not very many claw hammer games out there on the internet so if you give us a google you should be able to find it <laughs> powerful seo indeed same with uh Amazing. same with gravemeyer by the way the original name for the game was supposed to be backwater and then we found out that there was another tabletop game called backwater which had just finished its kickstarter when we were really taking off and it was also set in like the rural Southwest, although it was like a post-apocalyptic game. So fundamentally quite different, but we were like, we can't name this the same thing. That's not a good idea. <laughs> smart. Also smart. Maybe something to pick your brain with uh, way later into the show. But in addition, David, to your introduction, would you also kind of give us your tabletop lineage in terms of like what was maybe the first game that got you into the hobby discipline whatever your particular word for it is as well as what was the first game or sparked idea that got you to design as well sure this is going to be a bit of a deep cut for any of those of you uh listening who are from the east bay in the california bay area maybe you'll know what i'm talking about so when i was a kid and i mean like elementary middle school i went to this summer camp every summer called the role play workshop and what this place was was it was essentially a i don't want to say playground but it was an opportunity for the dm becky thomas to let you play in her world and i mm-hmm. do say that intentionally because it did feel distinctly like a privilege to do so she'd been running games in a world and a system of the same name called abante for oh boy a real long time by the time i was involved (laughs) and she she started it as like a high school she she was a, a a biology teacher for a high school, and she started it as like an after school project where all of the students would, I believe, they were tasked with making their own world, and then she did it as well, like with them. And they ended up she she ended up with this like incredibly complex, brilliant world, and then she started running games in it and realized that there were no systems for it, so she wrote a game for it. And then over like decades has revised this game and the world has been given literal, you know, like living history based on what the players have done over the decades of campaigns to the point where now in like the more recent editions of the manual, there are are chapters in the back of like stories or legends 
from the world. And after like the first couple, every single one is about a game that happened. And they're like these crazy, like impactful mythological games. And no, they're, they're just examples of high level play. And, and these characters, like these, these historical figures that, that your characters hear so much about are just other player characters that have existed at some point. And, and it ruined me because for years I, I couldn't, I couldn't match that. Like I tried to DM when I got to like middle school and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I know that that's probably disappointing, but I, I, I couldn't be her. And I spent a really long time as a kid, like chasing being someone else because I couldn't imagine anyone doing what she did different or better. And frankly, I still can't. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do things differently. That was the first example of a game that I was really like involved with and invested in, in terms of how I started making games that started Technically around the same time, I've been making games for as long as I've been playing them, if not longer. Uh, the first time that I really presented a game like to other people so that they could play it was my sophomore year of high school. I was looking to run some sort of D&D campaign, but at the time I had a sort of pretentious hipster-esque disdain for D&D where I was like, I don't want to play that because that's what everybody else plays. And I'm too cool for that because I'm 15. So instead, I I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write my own system and it's going to be great. And it's going to be the coolest thing that's ever happened to this school and people don't deserve me. And I, I wrote an original game system set in the the Fallen London universe by Fail Better Games. So Sunless Skies, Sunless Sea, and fall in London. It's a sort of like very odd Victorian Lovecraftian horror setting. It's big on like cosmic horror. It's a wacky time. And, and I, I made a, a system to like fit this setting cause I really liked it and it didn't make any sense, which is fine. But it, it, it was, it was, you know, it was my first shot and it was good enough and people seemed to enjoy it. So I, so I kept going and I kept writing other games that were less of a mess than my essential piece of role-playing fan fiction. And eventually I started, you know, like getting really, really into it. And I realized I didn't need to be Becky Thomas to make my own projects. I just couldn't ever, and I mean ever, do what she does. And that's fine. I I think that is it's so interesting. I think a lot of t- this is this is a really great lesson here about like looking up to a role role model and trying to like imitate a well you can't imitate people but it's about iteration, right? I think what I what I think is really interesting here is that at some point you have to realize that like since D&D is one of the more mainstream things like it's going to be really hard to become the next Matt Mercer. It's going to be really hard to become the next 
Brennan Lee Mulligan or whatever have you, or any version of those are just the ones I'm most common with on, uh, or most privy to on the, on the mainstream. But, you know, they, they have had 30 years to be Matt Mercer and Brennan Lee Mulligan. They've had a five year head start on playing in Exandria and being, and creating all these fantastical stories. And, you know, you can't blaze a path that's already been blazed sort of thing. So eventually you have to sort of divert and, do your own thing. And I love that that is where you have found yourself in doing a really great thing after being really inspired by Becky. So Becky Thomas, if you're out there and you somehow catch wind of this podcast, thank you for bringing us David truly. Yeah. And I mean, I find myself sort of catching myself and like checking that instinct all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. whenever I see a creator that I really, really look up to, and I have to remind myself all the time that they're just people mm-hmm. like they're just, they're mm-hmm. just me that I, I like, I'm like, Oh, I want, I want to be you. And it's not that I want to be them. It's that I want to do what they do. And, and that is something that I can do. I can't be J dragon. I can't be Riley Rethel, yes. but I, but I can have a similar impact, at least for, for some people. I'm not setting my, my sights too high on, on the number of people that I reach, but I don't know. The internet's a really big place, and I think it's really easy mm-hmm. to forget sometimes that every single person that looks like a number to one of us is like a full-on whole human being. And... Mm-hmm. Like people get real caught up in Twitter followers or Kickstarter backers or itch.io purchases, but like every single person that buys your game, that's like an actual human being that is spending their money that they earned on you. And obviously it's understandable to always like want more and to reach greater heights but it's also really important to kind of take a step back and be like, holy crap, there are real human beings out there who are reading my work and are like in my corner specifically for me. And that's wild. It's super, it's super true too. Like it is a lot of times like, Oh, I need these hundred backers. I need to have 500 followers, but it's like, when you when you try to put the like put those numbers in a house or on a street, right? Like, what does five hundred people who follow you or have backed you like physically look like? Right? That is yeah. truly crazy to me. A shopping mall worth of people likes your game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like an entire high school class. You know? Yeah. If you had an entire high school, 108 people, (laughs) I mean, yeah, mine, mine was like 130. I mean, 500 people is the, the sum total of the, the the number of people in my college class. But, but I know that I'm somewhat (laughs) the exception to the rule there. So I don't know. Like if, if you had an entire like 500 person grade of, of high schoolers obsessed with your work, I don't know what you would do, but that that would that would freak me out. <laughs> I'd be like, I made it. 
fucking did it. <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. Uh, yeah. Literally five. Everyone's like, I want like tens of thousands. I want 500, dude. I want 500 people who just really like my shit. That'd be great. Yeah. I would have a good time moving forward. Um, and it's easier than you think. I don't know. Like, yes, it's just something yeah. that I, I think about a lot. And I, I don't really talk to, to the rest of Clyhammer about it just because, you know, our, our whole thing is like, we, we need to, we need to like break out and we need to run those numbers. And I know that me saying like, Hey, but have you considered that maybe numbers aren't important is somewhat antithetical to what we're trying to do. But, but in terms of a personal philosophy, it is nice to voice. I, you know, I'm excited for, for what, Clawhammer is going to bring for the future. Speaking of which, bring the future. Let's let's visit Louisiana of the past. Let's talk about Gravemire, David. Um, yeah, let's do would it. You I love talking give about a, Gravemire. It's a great game. W- <laughs> would you give a brief introduction of like what the game is about and sort of what players do in it? As we For sure. Off. So Gravemire is a horror tabletop role-playing game. It's based on an original D12 dice engine. So it's one that I wrote myself, and it took a really long time. Anyway, so it's it's run on, on a D12 system. And in this game, you play newcomers or new arrivals to uh, a small town out in the Louisiana bayou called Scarstone. And the, the bayou around Scarstone has has recently been overtaken by this event called the Convulsion, which has warped the bayou into horrifying and nightmarish new forms. And your job as a newcomer is to take contracts and go out into the bayou, which is explicitly hostile to you, and do things. Maybe that's hunting a monster. Maybe that's, you know making contact with an entity or doing some scientific research. It, 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 it depends on the contract. Whatever the job is, you go out, you do it, and if you don't die, you come back to Scarstone <laughs> and you have downtime. You have time to rest and recover and build connections and build your backstory. And the game is sort of perched on this somewhat existential question of, hey, the bayou is really, really dangerous, like capital D dangerous. And at a certain point, your literal luck as the player is going to run out and your character's going to die. Whoops. So how, how do you as a player make sure that your death counts? Because the question is not, is my character going to die? Am I going to have to make a new character? The answer is yes. Almost certainly yes. At some point, that's going to happen at least once. The question is, how do I make my death count? And, and more importantly, it's, it's almost not about the death at all. It's how do I make my character's story count? How do I embrace my character's mortality and allow it to help me play bravely and make bold choices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though it's it's horror, it seems like that players, at least to to my projections of the game, as I as I read it, 
it seems like it gives you the opportunity to be, even though it's a horror thing, it's like that set. It's like, oh, I always forget the lead character's name in Alien. Can't remember. Sarah, no, I'm sure any- Sarah Connor is Terminator. God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sarah Connor in Alien. Yeah. For anyone who does remember, thank you for screaming at the podcast in this moment. But I think about how she doesn't necessarily save her crew or anything of that, but she does save that damn cat. She truly does save that damn cat. And it's these moments of heroism in the face of like truly horrible entities or personifications of something that can make or break a a character, right? When they either succumb or subdue themselves to that terror or they rise above it in a moment of sacrifice or in a moment of protection. And I think, I think that's a really cool angle to take on both like the heroic genre, like the sort of, cause I, I don't know. I'm not a good person to like coin things. I don't know if I would call this like high fantasy, right? But there is a fantastical element, a supernatural fantastic element to Gravemire. And it's like a cross between the heroic genre and, and the horror genre. Like it gives you the ability to really play into uh, the hero role, even though you may not be made out as a hero. You may just be like an everyday Joe Schmo who does like cool things for Scarstone. So I, I really like the angle you've taken with that is what I ultimately am wanting to say. Yeah. The neat thing about it also is the legacy that you leave behind isn't necessarily that you've like done some really epic and cool things out in the bayou. Like, Hey, remember that time that I like shot this monster with my repeating rifle through like the thick weeping willow overgrowth and it was really cool and I saved a bunch of people's lives. No, maybe it was like, hey, my character may be dead, but at least they rebuilt the schoolhouse in Scarstone. Yeah. You know? Like there are still kids there. Yeah. They need to learn. That's what I did. That's my legacy. And and I I like that the system allows or affords some amount of flexibility there, even though it's a system that is built for telling a very specific flavor of story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, also, I love. By the way, oh, go ahead. Ellen Ripley. Ellen Ripley, cool. Thank you, <laughs> Ripley. That's right. Again, thank you for screaming at the podcast. I um, heard you. <laughs> yeah, literally heard you. Yeah, I love. I love that sort of example of legacy because I think a lot. Like when I play in a lot of like West March D and D games, I think a lot about how different parties impact that sort of ever existing setting right you know they've already cleared out this dungeon or they turned this dungeon into a base and now it's a new dungeon like that sort of thing and you know someone died here and all their magic gear got left behind now that is treasure in this place and i really love a sense of what's the word permanence i think the word is permanence here that that you're sort of hitting on there and you know it's also probably why i like roguelikes and things like that. And what I really find interesting since we're on the subject of, of legacy, I really like the death ritual that, well, that was pretty harrowing. The ritual to honor a death. There we go. The ritual to honor a death for a player when they pass in the game, I think is something I've thought a lot about and I've seen 
people execute on actual plays, but I don't know if necessarily to this degree in terms of like a eulogy. Was that an important part of his, like, did that, was that something that came from the beginning ideas or did that develop over time as you were making sort of the setting of the game? Freaking sure. So a little context. I'm, I'm a religious studies major, well, religious studies and art history, but, but religious studies. And, and I, I talk all the time, my friends and like the people that I design with and play with almost like don't want to hear it anymore because of how much I talk about the power of ritual and the importance Mm -hmm. of it. Yes. That was like pretty central. It was one of the first things that I wrote and, and I knew that when I wrote it, that it was going to be a core element of the game. I didn't know at the time that the game was going to be exactly what it is now. Although mm-hmm. that's a longer and, and more complicated story because technically the game design started in 2018, although that was really just a proof of concept. And the, the ritual to honor death really came when I started game development in earnest, but yeah, it was, it was an early facet for sure. And I, I'm very glad that people have connected with it. Almost everyone who's read the game has pointed it out as like a particular thing that struck them as unique or as meaningful. And that, that means a lot. I, if anybody is curious about it, haha, you can read about it or you can, you can perform it if you want. It's in the play kit because Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't not put it there. So yeah, the, the game actually does have other elements of ritual, none quite as explicit. But that is definitely the one of the highlights of the game to me, especially because, you know, mm-hmm. death is such a central thing in the game. I, I wanted it to be something with weight and, and something that you could come back to and didn't just feel like, ah, damn it, another character's dead. You know, what are, what are we going to do this time? Yeah, I would I would love for any please go read Grave Mars the play kit is available for free on for free on itch correct if i'm yep. for pay what you want it's yeah it's free please don't don't pay for it <laughs> what do you mean ah, it still work that's just me that's the that's the business person in me oh as as i read it one of the things that i found really interesting is that you don't get rid of the character sheet well i don't want to spoil for anyone i'll try to keep it spoiler free but i would love to like have each player like hold on to a piece like it's a memento of that person and kind of like at end of play sort of like here here's all the people that that we you know bonded with along the way i would find that very a very interesting like house rule on my end and something i I think is really cool yeah i mean i the the game doesn't have an explicit system for what to do with the archive For those of you who are listening and don't know what the hell I'm talking about, the archive is where all of the remnants of character sheets are kept. They are kept by the dealer, which is the the word that Gravemire uses for the, the GM. And it doesn't specify anything beyond that the archive has to be upheld for as long as the Gravemire game continues. It doesn't tell you what to do with it after. And it doesn't even tell you what it is. The archive could be that each player holds on to the remnants and that the dealer just Mm -hmm. keeps track of it. 
It could be a literal wooden box, which is what I've used. It, it could be anything in between. And, and sometimes, depending on how you destroy the character sheet, there might not be a whole lot left. The archive that I use, for example, has like torn scraps of paper, but it may as well have had like ash or pulp, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. it's really up to the, the player who's lost their character, how that character sheet is destroyed. And I've wondered, you know, what people will do with it once they've finished. I have no idea. I don't have the answers for that one. Send those stories in, give them to David, share with you your burial ritual. Additionally to the, to the game, David, you talked a little bit about this 2d 12 system you have coined. And I know there's also 2d eights involved. Do you, was that a difficult it, it, it sounded like it was a strenuous project by the by the inflections you put on it, but was that a was that a challenging piece of design for you to come up with sort of a dice system for it? So, yes and no. Like I, let's give a little context here. Um, sure, sure. Today we're going to go on a bit of a journey. We're going to go all the way back to 2018. If you can remember what the world was like back then. In 2018, I was still, you know, somewhat wet behind the ears. And I was like, oh boy, I want to make a game and I want to set it in Louisiana. And I wanted to set it in the the bayou. And Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I was, (laughs) as I said, wet behind the very large mouse-like ears. And, and, And I wanted to make a game that was like really punishing for players and that like would kill characters really frequently and featured rapid character generation. If you couldn't tell, uh, shout out to Red Hook Studios. I was really into Darkest Dungeon at the time. And I was like, I want a game like that. Not realizing that that does not work in a tabletop role-playing game. Oh my God. What was I thinking? Send the troop to the meat grinder, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Cause like the thing about Darkest Dungeon is like, you're playing all of the characters and also you're not role-playing any of them. You're not inhabiting their headspace at all. Whereas in any role-playing game, you are to an extent that character. So it doesn't really work, but I made this like really janky D 20 system that was mostly just based on five V and like what I knew of, you know, more universal D20 systems. And it was bad. And there's no shame in me just saying that it was bad and it didn't work. And that's fine. And like the proof of concept proved that the setting was compelling enough that people were willing to suffer through my horrible game design just to be able to play in Scarstone and the Louisiana Bayou, uh, which is great because that's the only part that I kept. And when I returned to it with a little bit more finesse and experience i i was like okay so i don't want to do a d20 system because i feel like that actually conveys the wrong message to players and also Mm -hmm. the math doesn't work gravemeyer uses static difficulty levels for dice Mm -hmm. so god i don't want to like compare it to this but think of powered by the apocalypse when you roll your 2d6 you know you have fail partial success, full success, crit, and those DCs, for lack of a better word, are are static. You know, you roll the number and no matter what you're adding to it, whatever you roll, no matter what you're rolling for, like the numbers are going to be the same. If you roll 
I think it's seven to nine. That's a partial success. And then, or no, so dude, I don't yeah, remember. Right. I, I don't play powered by the apocalypse. Six near minus enough. is experience. Seven to nine is partial. And then 10 plus is uh, full success. Yeah, that's so it's, it's more like that. And it always was like when it was a D20 system, that was also the case. And it was something insane. It was like 14 up for even a partial success. It was brutal. But I, I, I realized I was like, I don't want people to be succeeding as often as they're failing. And I don't want people to be failing as often as they're partial succeeding. I don't want these all to carry like the same weight. And when you roll a D20, you know, there's a one in 20 chance. There's a 5% chance that you roll any of those 20 numbers. So I did a bunch of research, like a good boy, and I, I, I realized that if I had two dice, that instead of having that sort of even distribution, 1 to 20, that I would have a bell curve distribution mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people were rolling numbers in the middle much more often. Meaning that for Gravemire, you would be partially succeeding more than you'd be doing anything else which I thought was really interesting and I really liked because this is a game which is meant to be punishing, but just failing serially everything you do is not punishing. It's just not fun. And Gravemire is a game, right? You're playing it ultimately. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in, in your mouth, but I would assume that you're playing a game to have fun, at least on some level. Maybe it's type two fun where it's like miserable at the time and fun in retrospect, or maybe you like actually yeah. are enjoying it. I don't know. Type two fun. Yeah. My, my layout designer was telling me about this the other day when he was talking about the time that he hiked through an area right next to Death Valley in like a heat wave and oh, how it was God. not fun at the time, but in retrospect, it was great. And I was like, damn, good for you. Can't relate. But anyway, so I realized that, that if I had two dice, that the distribution would make more sense. And then and then it came down to that that age-old question of, you know, which dice to use. 2D20, that's excessive and insane and mm-hmm. way too many numbers for anybody to keep track of. Uh, 2D6, well, that's powered by the apocalypse and I'm quirky and different, so I can't do that. So then the question was like, okay, do I do 2D10, 2D8, or 2D12? And I did 2D12. And the reason for it is because I like them. I like the way that they look. I like the way that they roll. They're good. I like them. Also, one of the reasons that I like them is because in Abante, you know, Becky Thomas's game that I played as a kid, when you made awareness checks, which were essentially perception, you rolled 2d12 for them. So it was also a sort of element of nostalgia in that sense. And... Then for uh, for the willpower, that was much more numbers-based. I, I really didn't want to have to use 2d8, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. But the way that willpower works is you roll the dice, and then if they are higher, equal to or higher than, I believe, your willpower, or maybe it's just higher than, then you fail the mm-hmm. check. And willpower goes from uh, 10, and, and it goes down all the way to zero. So as you lose willpower, you have this sort of culminative culminative effect where the more willpower you lose the easier it is to lose willpower and any other set of two dice just didn't work mathematically for what i wanted it to do 2d8 goes up to 16 which is punishing but not unplayable Mm -hmm. if i did 2d6 it would be impossible to lose willpower at 
if you were at a full 10. It was like something mm-hmm. like a 4% chance. And I needed, I needed something that would consistently get the ball rolling, but where you wouldn't fail every time. And 2d8 was just what was available that let me do what I wanted to do with the numbers. And, uh, and that's how I settled on those dice. There's, there's a couple interesting things that you've said that have recontextualized some stuff for me. So for one, one of the things I really dislike about D is how skill checks and oh shit, not skill checks, but uh, yeah, well actually, yeah, skill checks, how the GM has to set a DC, like an arbitrary number on the feeling in the moment. Like I don't like that because it, I don't know, it just doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel fair to either side. If you make it too easy, it's like, I don't know. It's just like a very nuanced thing that has like an arbitrary mechanic on top of it. It's like, why would you even do that in the first place? So I've never thought about those success thresholds as static difficulty. Like I've never, I've never had those connections of words in my mind. So thank you for opening that up for me. That's going to be very useful to some things I'm personally working on. And deciding what dice to use. Another thing that I think is really important for everyone to kind of hear is like, some people may be listening to this podcast going like, well, sure, but why didn't you just use the 2D6 from Powered by the Apocalypse if you're looking for like a nice, simple bell curve? And you may have just wanted a wider bell curve. And also, like you said, you just like to, you just like the D12. Like there, there's nothing wrong with like, taking an existing mechanical precedence, I guess, and truly just like, I like bigger numbers. I don't know, man. Like, these are just the dice I like. There's nothing wrong with that. And then sort of the last thing there as well was, oh, shit. Oh, you uh, you mentioned about the 2D8s, right? And how the math wasn't working out on smaller dice. And some people could also be listening to this and go like, well, why didn't you just make willpower smaller? Well, for you, and I'm making assumptions here on your design process, nope. it could be a matter of like timing and pacing, right? Like you wanted the number 10 because that's how many like roles you wanted to fit into the gameplay loop, right? Like I think that's also something to take note of is like if you had done 2D6 and then the willpower had to be like five, Right or or some I don't know what that would that would look like math wise. You did the math. I didn't do the math. I'm just would probably have to be around seven. Yeah, yeah, but it's like that's shorter, right? Like that's less rolls. The the bad things are happening sooner. It's like another thing to think about when you make these sort of like rolling systems. And this is for the listener, not for you, David, because you already made your game. But and for me is that if there's a certain context of like something to think about is how many roles until you are creating the play state you want, right? Like how fast do you want to approach that? And I think die size is a great way to play into that as well. So really cool stuff out of that. Anything you want to touch on that I, that I mentioned in there? Yeah, I can, I can touch on, on a couple of things. One. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the math for, for willpower and such is like, well, well, really, really bad things happen when you lose willpower. Like mm-hmm. it's meant to be a deadly system, but it's not meant to kill you right off the bat. You know, like mm-hmm. if, if I made willpower lower or I adjusted that number, I would end up essentially with a system 
where as soon as you enter the bayou, you're already taking penalties. Or willpower mm-hmm. doesn't have penalties, and then it just kills you. And that's not fun. That's not fun oh, at all. God. I would know. That's how it used to work back in 2018. Anyway, <laughs> so there's that for sure. For the 2D12, one of the other reasons that I wanted to use it is is that I did want a wider margin. And the reason that I wanted that sort of wider margin was because unlike Powered by the Apocalypse, there are different levels of failure as well as success. And it's actually, again, I feel like maybe I, I shouldn't be saying that because if I did, then somebody that's listening is going to be like, but actually there there are different levels of failure for Power of the Apocalypse. And I just don't know the system well enough to speak on that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there are maybe three or four different levels of, of success and failure in Gravemire. And having that that 2d6 system didn't afford enough flexibility. And I I didn't have enough room to play around with the numbers the way that I wanted to. I couldn't Mm -hmm. make like those compounded failures so much less likely than a normal failure the way that I wanted to. So yeah, it's just a numbers game, which I hate. But th- there, this is what I get for writing a dice system. Next time it'll be belonging outside belonging, I promise. <laughs> Literally just words and feelings. We had Kurt Potts on here a while ago, and in his game, his and Kate's game, Lighthearted, they break up, they have di- set difficulty levels and like five margins of success, and they have exploding dice. But I think it's really interesting to like, do the math and find out I've been playing a lot with like margins of success just as like in different ideas. And I just find it very fascinating of like, you're, you're basically controlling margins of success ultimately control like the feeling of the game, right? Like you're really aiming for these partial successes, grave Meyer. Right. And so, cause that's where, that's where choice happens in a lot of cases. And I think that to some extent probably forged in the dark plays with this a bunch because of four five and uh, one to threes and stuff like there's a big margin for failure on a, on a single D six over a dice pool. Right. So I don't know. It's just very, uh, my mind is like uh, math. <laughs> math is cool. It is. And I, I, I think you're triumphant in what you've been executing on here in Gravemire as well. I, I appreciate that. I, I know that I would not have been able to make the numbers crunch the way I wanted them to without mm-hmm. the aid of one other particular member of the team. I So I, Gravemire has four editors. Wow. Yeah. Which for like one primary writer is, but that's fine. It was worth it. And I, I do mean that. It really was. And one of the editors specifically was like reading for game mechanic cohesion and like making sure that the numbers did what I wanted them to. And the two of us spent a, like a long time just tinkering endlessly with success margins and the way that XP works or excuse me, SP skill points. And all of this and, and, and like figuring out exactly how to make the numbers do what I wanted them to. 
And I'm sure that eventually I could have come up with some sort of facsimile that did roughly that, but it would have taken all summer just to do that mm-hmm. on my own. And then I wouldn't have finished the book. So uh, huge, huge thank you to Rafa for helping with that. Wow. It, 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 it helps more than I think they knew at the time. And it's funny too, because I think when I talked to them about it and I was like, this was so helpful. They were like, really? I feel like I didn't do anything. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, it didn't feel like I was half-assing anything. And I was like, no. So, I, I mean, it just goes to show, you know, different different people are very good at different things, which is why I have four editors. I, I love it. I love that you've taken the consideration, like, to give, an, to give editors each, like, a specific thing to sort of, like, edit towards, right, to polishing, I think is a, is a really cool. Something that I've not heard of, although I haven't spoken to many studio owners, which I hope to change here in the future, if anyone's listening out there would love to have more studio owners or directors be on the show not owners i guess uh, the next thing i sort of want to like tap into for gravemeyer and one of the things we talked about before we sort of turned on the mics for this i listen to a lot of like audio dramas i like world building why louisiana why the bayou why in the past what was the what was the reasoning for the setting here and you said that was sort of some of the first like one of the first things that the game had back in 2018 that you kept yeah good question hello David. the the reasoning is maybe not twofold but oh, no. several fold for for anybody who is familiar with that time period in the south scott it's got a lot going on and most of it is not not great i mean in america in general we have the gilded age which is essentially a capitalist hellscape, which we are rapidly in 2021 reapproaching. Where, like, it's, I believe, the only time in American history where company towns were standard. Only other time remains to be seen. And mm-hmm. in the South, in particular, they're still sort of reeling from Reconstruction and doing everything they can to not do reconstruction and so you have this time period and this geographic location which is just unbelievably tense it's you know it's looking at the increasingly industrializing north and it's sort of shaking its head and harboring resentment from the civil war still. And then in the South, you know, there are big changes happening, but no one is particularly happy about, sorry, not no one that no ex Confederates are particularly happy about. And I just found that tension really compelling. I suppose. I also just, I like Louisiana as an aesthetic setting for horror I think I think that it's, for lack of a better word, very spooky. Like, the bayou is spooky. There's no other real way to say it. I think the idea of, of telling a story at a time period, like, in a time where the state itself and its people are so lost about, like, losing yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't know. I like it. I find it. Maybe not poetic but certainly compelling also as a sort of personal thing. Like this is, it's tricky, right? Because there's the question of, you know, how, how did I decide on the setting of Louisiana for the game? And then why would I play a game set in Louisiana? And how would my Scarstone look? Because the dealer in, in Gravemire, has an enormous amount of flexibility and the way that their Louisiana Bayou and their sleepy little Louisiana town looks is very much up to them. So mm-hmm. a lot of the, the things that I like want to say are like core reasons behind the worlds of the game are really just like things that I would like to be in my version of that game. And and if people are particularly interested in hearing about what my Scarstone looks like, then 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 let's just say it better hit that stretch where I write and have like completely illustrated a setting guide. Ooh, exclusive knowledge. Yeah. Exclusive it, uh, knowledge. Maybe write is the wrong word. Co-write. Co-author. I have some guest artists and guest writers that are going to contribute to it if we hit that goal. Like My Scarstone, if you want more exclusive knowledge, suffered a, a, a very, very brutal slave rebellion during the Civil War, which was put down incredibly violently. And the nature of my convulsion the event that shook my Scarstone to its score is the spiritus loci of the town, which is, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the folklore and mythology of spiritus loci, it's, it's the literal, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a spirit of a place is essentially rattling its death knell and is unbelievably angry at the town for what it has done to its people. And that's what causes the convulsion. But that's just me. You know, that's not in the book. That's not in the manual. It'll be in the setting guide, but it's not in my manual. You know, (laughs) that's up to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think 
setting it in a place like Louisiana in a time like the 1890s, it affords that kind of story to be told. But I will say that it was not a decision that we made lightly. Setting a game in a time period that is that rife with tension and conflict, and not just that, but flat-out bigotry, is a is a bold move. Like, yeah, we've had to, I've had to think really carefully about how I want to present the way that Gravemeyer handles things like bigotry, things like ability, things like racism, which is a kind of bigotry. It it's it's very it's very tricky. And well, I think I've done a pretty good job of it, you know. There's always that element of risk of me worrying that somebody is going to pick up my game and do something with it that I absolutely and very explicitly stated should not be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for sharing all that beautiful history information for us for the setting. I do agree that you've left a, you have a lot of great like prompting questions and like the character creation process and developing your own personal scarstone which goes to show your want for people to make the setting their own. You just give them a little bit of like here are some starting hooks, a bit not like starting hooks in like the adventure sense, but just like here are some things that like this is the convulsion. This is why this is this way and play with that to your heart's content. So I think, I think the setting is very evocative. I think that, or I feel as I read it, you've done a lot of research for this, which is very cool. And I like the lengths at which you are taking to make sure that tables are safe when they engage with your, piece or your your team's piece into the world that is very like culturally loaded for america like highly culturally loaded and i I like it i uh, i think it's cool i like i think i'm growing slightly fonder of or getting more like of like a place in my heart for like historical fantasy like what is it called alternative fiction is that what that is Alternative history fiction? Historical fiction? Alternative history? Historical I don't, fiction? I don't know. One of those two things are true. <laughs> this is the part where the audience is going to be screaming at us again, and that's okay. Yeah. I've gotten used to it. Yeah. Ripley! Full circle. But yeah, when I you know heard about Black Mass from Will Yopes, what was the other one? There's another one that I had an interview with. Can't remember off the top of my head, and I don't want to spend too long on it. There have been some really cool, like, reinterpretations or additions to history that are very fascinating what-ifs in a way that also allows someone to examine maybe feelings that were felt back then. I mean, there's no... I don't know if there's any way that any of us can tell if we weren't there or the persons that we are um, extrapolating from, right? So there's no like one-to-one distillation that any of us could do. But I think it's it allows us to ask questions, right? It allows us to be curious and allows us to have entry points and like, oh, I'm a little bit more interested about like the mining situations down there, right? Like old, like listening to Old Gods of Appalachia, the audio drama, 
you know, I, I got curious about like the Appalachian Trail. I've been curious about like how mining industries and railroad industries were sort of concocted back then. So I think that fantasy is a really, or alternative fantasies are a really interesting way, another really interesting entry point into like curiosity and study of things that people may not normally have cared about until then. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I guess this experience of, of writing this game has also made me realize, you know, how little most people know about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not just this time period, but this place. Like, like, I don't think I've talked to a single person that knows why my studio is called Clawhammer Games. They think it's like Clawhammer, like a monster. And then they're like, why is your, why is your logo a banjo? <laughs> would you like to, would you like to tell me and the audience why, why that is the case? Sure. Clawhammer is a style. It's, it's the, it's also called old time banjo. It's a style oh. of banjo playing, which comes from, I mean, originally it, it it's from, from Africa, but. It's what we think of as as the like Appalachian folk music style. So like you see famous examples, Abigail Washburn, Pete Seeger, folks like that. There there are there are a lot. I if <laughs> if people are interested, DM me on Twitter. But like yeah, like like people people don't know this. And that's fine. Like I mm-hmm. don't expect people to know obscure banjo references but it just made me realize that like this is a this is a setting that that people are probably going to have to do some research about and that's fine maybe even good i i don't know it's it's interesting i don't have like an argument i'm making here i just think that it's interesting no yeah yeah i don't you know this isn't you know i would love to tell people to do more homework on history there's a lot out there especially like not just the world, right? Like not just other countries and mythology and stuff like that, but like America has a crazy history and rich in the sense that there it's so dense, not rich in that it's all positive. America, I don't think is a, this is my personal take. I don't think is a very like positively constructed country from like the rip, but it is, is really fascinating to see how different and even like pocket areas, right? Like, the states in of themselves have such a dense history. And then like, you know, a six mile radius can have like a terribly dense history of the last 400 odd years. And man, it's just, it's just wild and magical. And so I was just telling someone the other day that we take weather for granted. Like we think weather is just like a normal thing on earth, but like, Lightning is fucking crazy. Like it is literally magical in that it just produces in of itself inside of the clouds. Like, sure, we made up words and things to explain the phenomenon, but that doesn't make it any less wild. And I do think that when we think fantasy, I do think fantasy has like touches of exploring history and stories that have, that people have concocted over time and, urban legends and folklore and like 
that all comes from events that have happened to people in the real world. It's just very, you know, I'm getting a reappreciation for like our reality may seem mundane, but like there's, there's crazy packed stuff that humans have been through in their lifetime, in their small, small existence. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is truly wild stuff. And, and even just for like rural Louisiana, you know, there's mm-hmm. plenty that I don't know. I won't mm-hmm. proclaim expertise on it, but I think, I think like, like you said, you know, America is, is not the, the most well-constructed country on earth to put it, Truly. to put it somewhat mildly. And another reason that I wanted to set my game in this time period, and it's something that I sort of alluded to earlier, but that I maybe should make a little bit more explicit, is I believe that it has some very disturbingly close parallels to where we are at right now as a country in ways that maybe were not true as much when I was a kid. And and I think that horror in general is something that I, 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 I really firmly believe in its power as like a transformative genre that can help people process really crazy shit. And if if I can, you know, help people work through anything that's going on right now via a silly little game about like monsters in the bayou that's freaking fantastic i mean i mm-hmm. literally could not ask for anything better i love it it's good it's great you did a great job your team great job last last thing i want to do here before we move into sort of like the lightning round section and wrap up for the day do you have a piece of des- it might be the the death ritual but do you have a particular piece of design that like you're really proud of in terms of you know what you think is special about the game or something that your team has concocted together that's in the current current version of the game. You know, a lot of people would expect me to say the death ritual and I am proud of it. I think it makes the game very unique. What I've spent, I think the most time on has been downtime because I've found so often that downtime is, is somewhat anemic in, in role-playing games. Like D and D doesn't really have rules for it. It has some suggestions, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I personally am not a huge fan of the way that they handle it. And it also really does feel like sort of just like resting to reset your numbers in between fights, which is fine, but that's not the kind of game that I wanted to make. And even beyond just D&D, you know, like one of, one of the, the games that I took cues from was Lancer by Massive Press. And I like that they have so many options for downtime but they feel so brief and massive press. If you're listening to this, please don't take this as a criticism. I love your game. And I think that it works perfectly for Lancer to do what needs to be done and to sort of capture that feeling of waiting. But in Scarstone, you know, 
that's really the only time you get where you're safe. And so I've poured a lot of time and a lot of energy into making sure that downtime felt good. And more than that, that it helped the players as much as it helped the characters. That it felt, A, like a completely different game from the game you play out in the bayou. B, it gave your characters, like, tangible advantages or it impacted the game mechanically in ways you could feel and see that it, it, it made the players feel like they were also getting a break and that mm-hmm. they were able to do things now that they couldn't do before. And what I mean by that is they're able to build out their character's backstory and connect it to other people in a very direct, very immediate way. And and I like that. Yeah, I like that shit. trends and tips and things, topics that you want to get into in terms of the tabletop industry space in really any and all facets as it connects or pertains to other industries or other individuals. But usually what I ask, are there any trends or topics that you're seeing in your social circles, Discord, Twitter, personal messages that that are really cool that keep like blipping on your radar. I was like, I love that people are doing this. Are there ones that you think people should be cautioned against or maybe like re-examine as they explore these trends as sort of like a cautionary tale thing? Or is there something within you that you want to birth into the ether for any of our listeners to just take and run away with? Mm. I know it's a lot of options on a fairly amorphous subject Tricky. matter. One of the, the things that I've been seeing on Twitter a lot, is, like very recently, has been the discourse about like the GM isn't God, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I agree that the GM isn't God, but the way that people have been talking about it is somewhat like... Uh, Blaming the game itself, which is understandable. I mean, a lot of games, you know, like I've seen one of the, the, the major arguments that people have been making is like the reason that, that, that games treat the GM like God is because they want the players to treat the designer like God and to like mm-hmm. sit back and be, you know, in awe of the way that this brilliant game is constructed. And I guess then my my input i've been sort of refraining from from participating in this discourse because it makes me anxious mm-hmm. but my input would be that i think maybe we should take that conversation further not necessarily that we should you know keep yelling at gms but to really think about and question 
why it is that we are just now talking about it. And also like, what can designers do differently? How can we approach games in a way that is kinder to players? Because I think that's the issue. The issue is not that we're giving the DM too much power, which also may be true in certain games. But I think it's that we're treating the player or the players like an audience. It's, it's, it's their, it's their story. The way that I would prefer that people think about it is that the game system isn't a game at all because it's not a game until the player is playing it. The the game is facilitated by the system and that facilitation is aided by the DM, but it's the players that make the game because it's them that are telling the story. And, and I don't know like how severe of a humbling people need, but your game's good, but it's not all that. It's the players. It's the players that are that are that are putting in the work here. I mean, to be clear, if your game is good, it's good, and I have major respect for game designers. <laughs> but like, maybe have some respect for the people that are buying your game. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've just accidentally con- like constructed a straw man and then burned it, but. But there you go. Lightning round. Lightning round. Yeah. I think there's a, like a bigger, like, I feel like I've seen, I've seen the discourse you're talking about on, on Twitter, on the twitter.coms as well. I don't often get involved in discourse unless it usually has something to do with like racial identity or something to that effect, because that's the shit I care about the yell about. But I feel like, this might be an evolution of like the antagonistic GM conversation as well. Just like maybe approach at a different angle. I do, I do agree with you. And I, I think I agree with not, I think I do agree with the whole, the entire sentiment of like the GM is not the final authority on narrative in terms of a narrative control, I suppose like gets the final word. I definitely think that's a pretty subtractive experience for a table unless like that is what the game is mechanically about. And like you've all signed up for the social contract of like it's a one V however many style RPG makes me think of old Mario party games. And I think that there definitely is like a, let's push that conversation further in terms of like, what is creating this feeling? Like, is it, is it advice? Is it mechanics? Is it distribution of GM power? We've actually had quite a, quite a couple of guests on here. MV comes to mind. Viditia is one. Who else? Someone else does a lot of like GM list, GM full games. Riley Rethel, Jay Dragon, I think has talked about this before in, in a different way. 
And there is like a distribution of player power that can happen in terms of RPGs, role-playing games. And in my experience, the games that I've read, I think a lot of it has to do with like GM advice from some of the more popular games like Dungeons and Dragons, but even like by the apocalypse, right? Has some GM advice that like puts it in that the GM is on onus of directing, right? Being a director for the game, even though it also has advice of like play with the player, but you know, they have control of clocks and things like that. Forge in the dark is very similar in that like the GM has the ability to control the clocks and also controls the conversation around position and effect at the end of the day, which is very powerful, even though like in Forge in the dark, right? Like players get to pick the skill they use, but the GM is constantly able to reassess the terms at which position and effect, right? I want to attack the guy with my shoot. Cool. He's wearing a Kevlar vest it's you know that's going to be risky and oh god i don't remember the levels normal low effect low impact i remember and then they go like oh i want to get in melee with them cool you could probably get around the kevlar but you know he's a trained kav McGraw fighter so like that's also going to be difficult it's always like even though they get to pick the action the gm can always like wrangle the narrative to fit the difficulty they foresee not the player foresees So that's an interesting thing, I think, to look at as well in terms of, like, that GM power. And I think part of it also is, like, tone. It's it's how we talk to players as designers in our games. You know, like like I said, your game isn't a game until it's being played. It's just a piece of media. Mm -hmm. And, And do you really want your book to come across as condescending or, like, instructional? You're not teaching someone how to tell a story here. If they picked up your game, they probably know how to tell the story, like to tell a story, maybe not the story that they're looking to tell, but that's Mm -hmm. not what they need advice on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is definitely approach of like, you know, do we challenge, even in, in, in Gravemire, you, you mentioned how you, you know, challenge the, or what is the specific, you know, it's like challenge the characters, not the players. What is the word on? I have the book open. I want to find it. Where the fuck is it? Uh, well, you're looking, punish characters, yeah. not players, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, there's so much and, good advice for the dealer and the players in that book. I've referred, yeah. I've referred so many baby DMs, like in my friend group to just like, well, just read, read. Read the section in Gravemire about it. It's great. And it's also like a part of the game, right? Like you you have created a deadly but not necessarily quickly lethal game, and that was the intention. And you're and you tell the the dealer to push on the characters, like continue to push them because that is what the the bayou has in store for them when they leave town. But you also allow perfectly fine respite like you have really good pacing in terms of like how do you how do you engage with your legacy before the inevitable time that your player your your character comes to an end here in this game whereas like we talk about games like D, which is heroic fantasy stuff and the system is built to like the on the player side like the players can't really if you do it right the players can't lose in D. like they can't there's no like real failure once levels get high enough and then the DM has to figure out like, oh, sh- 
shit, how do I make my my toys more deadly or like how do I like present challenge because the game doesn't really help me with that outside of like CR rating, which don't even get me started on the math of it. Doesn't make sense. And yeah, there's just like a really weird wiggle room right now in the mainstream games in terms of GM advice and probably like not a great distribution of power and that all of that has to be levied or maneuvered or leveraged with the experience of the players at the table, right? Like an experienced GM might be able to look at that and be like, I know how to like keep a parse on keeping it equal between me and the players when it comes to story, right? Whereas like someone taking the advice full sale from the book might not get the same projections about its intent when worded or I might take its intent to literally, right? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of interesting pieces to the puzzle, I guess is what I'm ultimately saying. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, you're, 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 you're preaching to the choir, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think there's a really good examination in terms of like GM is God game designer is God conversations. And really it's like a, my take is that I think it, it's like you mentioned about tone and about like distribution of player power. Like everyone's a player, in terms of like when they pick up the game GM or not, but there's There's definitely some games that push really hard in the GM's favor for like you have, you potentially have a lot more control than, than the other players at the table. There's a term I use in Gravemire when I'm talking in, in the dealers chapter specifically about Mm. the role that they have in the game. And I'm trying to find it because it's, it was a word that I, 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 ch- I changed it like five times and I bounced back and forth. I mean, I'm sure that you know how this is when you're writing. It's right at the beginning. You are not the player's enemy so much as their facilitator providing them with the tools and guidance they need to allow them to sink their teeth into the emotions of the game without anything breaking or snapping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and there are, there are, several instances where I'm essentially giving the dealer the advice of, Hey, like play the game with them. You know, you're allowed to be sad when people die. (laughs) It's interesting because I mean, I know that, that you have specific mechanics for the dealer to also engage with and be a player of the game. But I think about like, I think the, the term dealer is actually very apt here because I'm now comparing it to like a blackjack dealer, right? A blackjack dealer at a casino knows the rules of the game and they're there to facilitate the player, the, the other bidders at the table to play the best game that they can play by knowing the rules and splits and things like that. Double downing and all those intricacies of the game. So it's almost like referee might be too strong of a word because that, kind of an accident. Well, is a referee playing in a game, right? Like I just we've been watching a lot of like Olympic volleyball and I I'm now thinking about like watching the ref is like the ref is technically a a player, 
Like they're just helping make sure that the other players can engage with volleyball in equal terms on either side. So like, I know that I've heard before that like to see a GM as referee is kind of like a removed or disassociated sort of role, but I don't know now that like we're talking about this, like positioned as like the person who can make the final call in terms of like just strictly the rules, maybe not necessarily narrative. Like what would a, could it almost be like, and maybe not Gravemeyer specifically, but like, it's almost like this could be a GM list game in a way you just have a person that's also there to like, Hey, I can't remember all the rules for playing. There's this one. I remember there's this one thing about, about combat. Could you like help us with that? It's like, yeah. And then I could like pitch some ideas and like, I don't know. That's, it's just, my mind's kind of, I don't maybe have the quite the language to get my idea across perfectly, but no, I see what you're getting at. And I mean, Gravemire was never intended to be like a GM list game per se, right. but you could, you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily be, be wrong to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that? What do you think about like, is the referee a player or not? Are they just like an automated human who's sort of like, you can ask like an, a walking FAQ or do you think like the ref is a, is a player? I'm leaning towards, I think, ref as player, but that's just me. I think it depends on the sport, honestly. I think there are some mm-hmm. where the referee is just an observer. Sure, sure. I would say for a game like, I don't know, I'm not a big sports person, but let's say for a game like basketball, I mean, they're they're running mm-hmm. up and down the court, right? That's mm-hmm. a genuine question. I have no idea. But I would say, you know, if you're, if you're like right there with them, like you're probably a player or like baseball i would say umpires are certainly players i mean like they're right yeah. there on the field yeah what about in like rpgs do you think like the gm like gm as referee could also like if if mm, i'm trying to think of a mainstream game that could be a good example or be a near example of this maybe forged in the dark is sort of sort of this but like do you think do you think gm is referee is i would is a thing? i would say power by apocalypse because the the keepers rules are all responsive mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's all based on what the players do i would say that 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 yeah that's certainly it and i i do actually know i i can't remember this is going to sound terrible. I, I I recently ran Agents of the Odd, which is a hack for another game, and I don't remember mm-hmm. what the system's called. Even though I think I'm mutuals with the writer on Twitter, so I'm very <laughs> sorry. But it's good, and it uses referee as the like the name for the DM. And I know like Nevin Holmes Gun and Slinger uses Maestro, mm. which is like mm-hmm. implies a like a teaching relationship, you know, which is. Really interesting. And yeah, for Gravemire, we use dealer because the dealer for blackjack or for poker or really any of these games, like they're playing too. Yeah. They just happen to know that the game is rigged. <laughs> no, that's important. Yeah, no, I no, I totally see what you're saying. I just that's very funny. Yeah. It's also particularly funny because the the next the next game that, that Clawhammer is going to be releasing follows that exact premise. 
That they know it's rigged? That one person knows the game is rigged. Ooh. Interesting. Interesting take. Good. I look I look forward. I look I look forward to rigged game for referee. Referee concepts. Feel free to feel free to tweet at me about referee concepts. I would I would would love to pick some more brains about this. David, I think that's going to bring us to the top of the show. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Additionally, would you once again outro yourself, get, you know, plugs, where can people reach you? Where can they find Gravemire? All of those things, all these links that David is going to mention will be down below in the show notes for your access listeners. Yeah, again, thank you guys for listening. My name is David Gales. I am the director of Clawhammer. You can find me at Twitter, Lamplighter1504. You can find the Clawhammer Twitter at Clawhammer RPGs. You can find our itch, Clawhammer Games, and our Kickstarter at the same name. Thank you so much. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you learned a lot because I definitely did today. And we will catch you on the next episode. Say bye to the people, David. See you guys later. Bye. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with David and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with David or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.